the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Kim, that's me, and Phil. That's, that's me. <laughs> showcasing an amazing nomad, someone that demonstrates fear, discovery, connection, transformation and love through travel. And this time we're showcasing the owner and founder of Spin the Globe Travel, Sylvia Longmire, a service-disabled veteran, author, consultant, entrepreneur and world traveller. Look, her company, Spin the Globe, organises accessible travel trips and it was founded after Sylvia herself was confined to a wheelchair with MS. She says, using a wheelchair or any other mobility device shouldn't keep you from exploring all of the amazing things that the world has to offer. I don't know where to start with you, Sylvia. In fact, when Phil was going through uh, the information that I shared with him about you, he's going, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Phil, what what was it about Sylvia? Oh, well, because, you know, in my role as travel safety expert, a few years ago I was asked a lot of questions about if it's safe to go to Mexico. And I'm just reading about your expertise there and things that you've written and it's like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let's start with that then before we get into, sure. you know, spin the globe. All right. Mexico then, is it safe? Well, well, the, well, the stuff that you were writing was at the height of the so-called drug war there and it was pretty bad, right. wasn't it? Yeah, and it's actually still pretty bad. The, uh, the homicide rates are at record numbers, sadly. Nobody seems to have found a good solution. Uh, but as far as travel goes, you just have to kind of pick and choose your destinations. I mean, tourism is still one of the top income sources for Mexico, and you still see resort places or resort cities like uh, the Cabos and Puerto Vallarta, uh, Cancun and Cozumel that are still thriving. So there are still places that are safe, but you have to do your homework. You can't go driving around by yourself in the middle of the night in more remote areas. Uh, It's about doing the research and just asking the questions. So there's only ever been like a handful of tourists have been, you know, involved in the violence in any way. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, every Christmas, there's something like 7,000 people get admitted to hospital every Christmas time because they injure themselves trying to open the clamshell plastic packaging, you know, they use knives and things like that. So I, I did the maths and it works out like, you know, you're 75 times more likely to be injured by your own Christmas present than you are by a drug uh, cartel in Mexico. There's a headline, Sylvia. <laughs> there is, there is. That's a, that's my next, blog, my next blog post right there. Okay, you got, it's all yours. You can have that. Well, not only are you a travel agent, but you're a, an ex-special agent? I am. I was, uh, I was in the Air Force for eight years from 1997 to 2005. Uh, I was an Air Force officer, and my job for that time was as a special agent in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Oh, I love it. Sounds very exotic, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, you are a disabled veteran, and I initially thought that you'd been hurt in action, but or injured in action, but you're in a wheelchair because of a neurological disorder? Yes, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2005 while I was on active duty. Uh, So if you develop a chronic illness or uh, any kind of condition that you're no longer fit for service, uh, then they consider that service connected. So that's why I was medically retired from the Air Force with my rank at the time as opposed to being separated. Were you disappointed by that? 
Um, part of me was yes, because I had kind of envisioned, you know, I was, I was doing really great in my career. I had kind of envisioned doing 20 years and, and retiring, but also I had just gotten married, uh, at the time, right before my diagnosis. And one of us was going to have to eventually separate from the military if we wanted to have kids and stay together instead of being stationed apart, uh, because my ex-husband is active duty. So it was kind of a, a pro and a con, but looking back now, yeah, it's easy to, to say, Hey, if that hadn't happened to me, if I hadn't been diagnosed with MS or would I be where I am now uh, doing all of these things, trying to help other people in wheelchairs and, and travel and see the world and working on my nonprofit. I, I have a pretty great life right now. So looking back, everything just kind of worked out for the best. I, you know, when you get a diagnosis like that, obviously it's a very sort of, you know, shocking moment for you. Were, oh, you, th- were you thinking at that time, okay, there goes all my chance of travel or, you know, was there a process you went through? Well, uh, there's always a process and you know, travel wasn't even on my scope at the no. time. Um, everybody who deals, I don't want to say everybody, that's too general, but a lot of people who deal with uh, a diagnosis of a disease, especially something that's chronic, long-term and incurable like MS, goes through the grieving process just as if somebody that they love died. Mm. Uh, you go through the denial and the anger and the sadness and eventually the acceptance. Now, I was fortunate, and I'll, I'll put that in quotation marks, yeah. in that my MS diagnosis took two years, two and a half years to come about. And that's typical of MS. You have to go to the doctor and have so many symptoms looked at and so many tests done. It can take a really long time to diagnose. So my first symptom, uh, I lost vision in one of my eyes for about two months. It was highly indicative of developing MS later on. Now, I didn't have anything else wrong with me at the time, and my diagnosis came two years later. But when that happened, I was prepared for it because I had two years to kind of deal with the, the possibility, do the research, find out about the treatments and everything, and kind of sort of have a hypothetical plan of what am I going to do if this diagnosis comes down? Not everybody uh, has that luxury. So yes, it was a shock. And yes, it kind of turned my world upside down with the, when the retirement happened and I had to move and I was no longer active duty, but I figured it out. And uh, a lot of people uh, are able to do that. Tell us about creating yeah. Spin the Globe. Well, after, yeah, I, again, I was I was diagnosed in 2005. I was married for 10 years and I traveled a lot before uh, I got married. I traveled a lot when I was on active duty and I started traveling by myself uh, when I was on active duty because I didn't want to sit around and wait for somebody else to either have the time or their money to do that. And uh, I didn't really travel very much, a little bit for work here and there and for family holidays and such during the 10 years that I was married. But after I got divorced... Uh, when my ex and I split, my children live with him during the school year. So I live by myself and going from being a full-time mom and working from home and having the whole kind of insane, crazy schedule to going and living by yourself in a wheelchair is a real shock to the system. And having to start this entire life with this new normal, uh, without my kids and, and just in a new place, in a new home, uh, surrounded by family, fortunately, but I didn't, really didn't know where to start. And travel for me has always been a source of, of peace and healing and, and calm. And I said, you know what, now that I have the time and I have the ability, maybe I just need to, to go on a trip. And that's what I started doing. And I started doing it slowly at, at the time. I did a road trip in the Southwest 
And uh, the southwestern United States, the canyon lands and the deserts have always been kind of very healing for me. And uh, I, I did okay with that. And then I went to Australia, which I'd been dreaming of going to Australia for 25 years. And I finally went to Sydney all by myself. And that kind of made me more bold. I went to Dubai by myself. I went to Iceland. I went on an Alaska cruise with my best friend. I, the more I traveled, I said, you know, I've been a professional writer for like 10, 11, 12 years writing about drug war stuff, which is obviously very different. But I said, you know, there are a lot of bloggers out there. There are some accessible travel bloggers out there, not many. Why don't I write about this? This is what I do. And kind of out of that experience is where my blog was born. Those countries that you mentioned, and in particular, Sydney, how wheelchair-friendly are we? Uh, I loved it. One of the things that I loved the most was the accessible taxis in Sydney, that there's a, a phone app specifically designed for accessible taxis. I think it's called like Taxi 200 or something like that. Um, there were some hills in Sydney. That was exciting, especially going down. Uh, so it's a little hilly, but um, it's very it's very westernized as far as the, what our laws are and what the accessibility expectations are there. Uh, I was very, very pleased. Uh, I could eat, uh, I could shop in my hotel, I could get in the bed and I could use the bathroom, which is always the most important things for me when I travel. Um, but I was able to take a tour of the opera house. Uh, I was able to take the uh, Manly Beach Ferry and, and take the, the little boardwalk and promenade around Manly Beach and uh, do all sorts of really exciting things. So I was extremely, extremely happy with the accessibility in Sydney. Now I just have to go back and check out Melbourne and, and Brisbane and all sorts of other places. And I did take the train, actually, when I was in Sydney. I wanted to go out to the uh, to the Olympic Stadium and I took the train out there. It was very easy. So yeah. since your diagnosis, then how many countries have you been to? Total, in in my whole life, 57. Oy. And in a, in a wheelchair, I've been to 49. And out of those 49, I've been to 41 of them by myself. Pretty impressive. But yeah. I also don't want to be patronizing. No, I mean, I, I it's... Uh, I don't, I don't want to say that I'm a country collector or anything, but I got to take a look at it from the American perspective. So just like you guys were a big country, and I think it's hilarious how some people don't know how big Australia is, and they think that they can go from Sydney to Uluru on like a day trip. Yeah, <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, Good luck. you know, we're, we're, we're about, we're roughly the same size as you guys. So, uh, and a lot of people in the Midwest that either don't have the money or it's just too expensive, you have to fly everywhere and we yeah. don't have a good rail system. So you have people who are living, especially in the Midwest, who have never left their home state uh, because it's just too expensive and it's too far. They've never seen the beach. They've never seen the ocean in person. So given at least from the American perspective and where we put a, a priority on travel and if you've got kids, it's really expensive. Uh, so, yeah, if you've been to at least you know over 10 or 15, even over 10 or 15 countries for an American, that can be impressive just because of the challenge we have to travel. Now, if I were living in Europe, people wouldn't bat an eye because you can visit seven countries in a day just taking the train. So a lot of it has to do with geography. Well, we spoke earlier or late last year, sorry, to actor, travel writer and director Andrew McCarthy, and he said 40% of Americans have passports, but only half of them have ever used it. Yeah, it's, and it's a shame, but again, it's a lot of people are scared of foreign travel. Americans, culturally speaking, are a little more insular I believe than let's say Europeans. And again, that's not, that's not to, to condescend or talk down again. It's just because we're not so easily exposed to 
uh, foreign countries and cultures because we've got Canada to the north, which is kind of like United States light. You know, there, there are so many similarities in, in, in culture and such. And then we've got Mexico to the south, but that's it. We don't really have any more exposure than that. But you have made a, another leap as well, uh, in a way, by becoming a travel agent. How did that come about? Uh, it wasn't my idea. Like most amazing things that have happened in my life, somebody else just kind of gave me the idea. And fortunately, I was able to kind of grab onto that idea and, and, and turn it into a really good opportunity. Uh, I was at my first travel uh, writer, travel blogger conference in Huntsville, Alabama. And this was like almost three years ago. And I was sitting around talking with some old friends and new friends. And we were talking about accessible travel writing and what I did. And uh, another travel blogger who is now a, a good friend of mine, um, the fellow uh, travel blogger, Jennifer Ruiz. And she's like, oh, you know, have you ever thought about becoming a travel agent? And I looked at her, I was like, no but I will look into that. So having started several businesses already on my own, um, I, I did the research and found out how what I need to train, what do I need to do to start the business, what do I need for insurance, for license, and all this and this. And I did the homework and I said, all right, let's get started. And I found a training course. And um, knowing the geography and knowing the nuts and bolts of travel from personal experience is one thing, but you still have to know the lingo. You've got to know the business. And now it's that you're trying to make dreams come true for other people, but you kind of become responsible for their happiness when it comes to travel. And that's a big, uh, that's a big responsibility to to shoulder and you have to be there if something goes wrong and um, you want to make sure that you understand what their needs are and ask the right questions so that they can be comfortable and safe Um, because arranging a honeymoon for two young and healthy and fit people is a totally different story from arranging um, a birthday cruise for somebody who's a quadriplegic or needs oxygen or needs other uh, mobility equipment to make sure that they that they're safe. Um, but I, I was down for the challenge and it's been really amazing. It's been over two years now that I've had my own agency and I just I love working with my clients and when they come home and seeing that they had a good time and it's it's really really rewarding experience. Yeah, look, it must be super complicated organizing accessible holidays for people. People. It must get really, really complicated. It is simply because everybody's needs are totally different. And it's not that much of a stretch because everybody likes to vacation differently. Everyone has different tastes. You have some folks who are really laid back. And as long as they have a bed and a bathroom, they're totally okay. And you have other folks that have very discerning tastes and like something a little more luxurious or want to make sure they're on a certain floor or a certain side of the building or uh, I would say that just that the needs are unique. Are providers getting better at it? Slowly. Um, I, I love to cruise. It's my favorite way to travel. And I'm noticing that the cruise lines are advancing a little more quickly than other parts of the travel and tourism sector. Uh, hotels are the second most infuriating because at least in the United States, we have laws. You know, we have the American with Dis- Americans with Disabilities Act that have certain requirements for Uh, grab bars and the way that showers where the seating has to be and you have to be able to reach the shower controls and 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 the doorways have to be so wide but if something is not regulated by the law or dictated by the law then the hotels generally don't go out of their way or go above and beyond to make that happen so for instance furniture is not part of the law so they don't bother to pay a wheelchair user to go through their property and tell them oh by the way this wheelchair user can't reach 
reach the window to close the blinds because you put a huge heavy couch in the way, or I can't reach the, the, the light switch or the temperature control. I can't get around the bed because I, there's no space. None of that is dictated by the law. So even though a hotel says it's ADA compliant or accessible, I would say that 50%, if not more, between 50 to 70% of the time, I can easily find a violation of accessibility laws in hotel rooms across the country. So, um, and then I don't even want to talk about airlines because we don't have that much time for me yeah. to get into a rant about uh, airlines and wheelchair damage. When you say the word violation, it made me shudder <laughs> just knowing that you're a special yeah. agent. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to pass on your knowledge, uh, that means you have to keep traveling. What are you, what are your plans? What are your next destinations? Well, uh, I'm, uh, saving some money because I'm taking my, my children on a couple of big trips next summer. Um, my kids are now 11 and nine and we went on five trips this past summer and they did, they're just amazing to travel with. Hey, that's a pretty awesome wheelchair. I see in some photos of you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I've had it for a little over a year and I was actually a brand ambassador for the company for a couple of months. And, uh, I regularly torture and uh, put that chair through the ringer. It's a it's a sturdy, strong, loyal little chair. Uh, it wasn't cheap, but I, I did my research and I need to know that I can rely on my chair, especially traveling solo for safety reasons. I need to make sure that the battery is going to last, that it's not going to die out on me, that I'm not going to have pieces that are falling off or flying out. It, it, my chair is my lifeline. It's my legs and I needed to, to get me through that destination. I'm just imagining the salesperson that you were talking to. You didn't stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> that is Sylvia Longmire, and we will have links to Spin the Globe and Spin the Globe Travel and more on Sylvia, including her work as America's foremost subject matter expert on Mexico's drug war and border security issues. Oh, mate, I could have talked about that forever. <laughs> I know, right? In show notes. <laughs> but you can get both our amazing Nomads episodes and our destination episodes wherever you get your favourite pods. And please do reach out to us with your experiences of travel at podcast at worldnomads.com. Next week, we're travelling to Bulgaria. Bye. Bye. Amazing nomads. Be inspired.